gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media go to the dispatch.com for all the free stuff and maybe become a member and help us conquer the universe um and nonetheless find all sorts of good things that aren't uh deranged um since there's so much derangement going around today um so um uh, I'm very excited about our guest today. You know, we have a lot of, we usually do a lot of political theory stuff and politics and rank punditry and whatnot. And you might not think that we would have a guest on this program who is actually the author of the number one book, number one bestseller on Amazon in the category of polymer chemical engineering. But we landed her and we're very excited about it. And that is Virginia Postrel. Virginia, welcome to The Remnant. Nice to be with you, especially since you have a textile-oriented podcast, I understand. It's called The Remnant, right? You know, I, I wanted to talk about like fabric-related words, and it didn't even occur to me that The Remnant would be one of them, but I guess you're right. Um, yes, it's, it's at a third remove. So yes, because it's, it's biblical. Alfred J. Knock took That's it right. from Isaiah. That's right. That's right. But, but Isaiah, the original remnant was a cloth thing, I, su I suppose. Yeah, right? a remnant, yeah. as people who sew and who look for bargains in, in fabrics will know, a remnant is what's left at the end of the bolt. It's the sort of odd little piece that's the leftover. And uh, so that's the remnant, yeah. But it, it's but it, is the derivation originally from weaving and not from food or some other thing? Because remnant is the last bit of something, right? Uh, it just it never occurred and to me that it was. I believe it is originally from fabric, um, but I couldn't swear to it. I haven't researched remnant. I did a lot of research on it for my uh, preface on all the various textile metaphors that are in our language and other people's languages. Uh, yeah, so let, let's actually it. start there, because, I mean, the one I was most intrigued by um, is actually heirloom, which uh, had not occurred to me. But why don't you explain where we get heirloom from? So heirloom is a loom that you weave on that you inherit it because I... Uh, a loom is a piece of capital equipment. It's valuable. Um, so at the time that people were hand weaving, uh, this was something that you might you would pass down in your family, just like any other valuable piece of furniture or, or uh, a forge, I guess, or other other types of capital equipment. Um, and uh, tenter hooks which is another one I always thought had something to do with um, some horrible process that went on with cows, but apparently it's also from fabric in some way. Yes, it's a horrible process that goes on with wool. So uh, when they used to make wool, uh, this, is, this goes back to sort of medieval and later period, uh, they, would fur they would weave it and then they would do what's called fulling, which is Basically, you get it wet and you pound it and you use this kind of clay on it that's called fuller's earth. And the idea is that you you kind of felt it. You, it becomes less water permeable. It becomes thicker. Um, and then once you've done all that, 
clean it off. Uh, it's wet and you stretch it and the edges are caught on these tenter hooks, which are these nasty looking little small iron spikes <laughs> that hold it while it dries so that it doesn't shrink up. And, and when you see them, I saw them in a museum in, in Britain, uh, you can see where the metaphor comes from because this is tension. It, they're stretched. It's, it's that kind of anticipation or anxiety is, is very much in there. And, and they are pretty nasty. Yeah, I mean, the, the irony is, is that a lot of people won't use tenter hooks because it's sort of archaic, and instead they would use frazzled, which also comes from yeah. fabric stuff, right? Yes. Frazzled is just, you know, uh, frazzled is, is <laughs> this, when, you, can... when you, you know, you have a, an edge that's not sewn and the, the threads, the thing about fabric is that it's all about friction. It's, there's not really anything holding stuff there. So if you have a woven fabric and you, uh, it's not hemmed or anything, it will come apart. You can pull the horizontal weft threads out of it and it will fray, which is. A- okay. Uh, I, 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 so I want to do full disclosure. I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I would be shocked if you didn't agree with me that I think that Russ Roberts is a national treasure. He's the host of Econ Talk. And uh, he had you on to talk about your book, which I should say I have not mentioned yet. It's called The Fabric of Civilization, How Textiles Changed the World. And um, I was very excited to have you on. And um, I love Econ Talk. I listen to it all the time. I I, I basically acknowledged the podcast in the dedication of my book. It was so useful to me to like pull on threads, to borrow a term. (laughs) And um, uh, but you were on recently and I got to say you spent like the first 30 minutes explaining these arcane procedures about how thread is made and then how thread is turned into string and then string or whatever and yarn and whatever. (laughs) Some of it was actually pretty interesting, but I think we could have condensed it down to about 10 minutes. Also it's better to watch it on YouTube videos. That's probably (laughs) right. (laughs) That's probably right. So this is a long way for me to say that if people are really, truly interested in the step-by-step way in which the technology of fabric stuff evolved from a, from, from beginning to end, I highly recommend listening to the first half of the econ talk podcast, (laughs) but we're going to skip some of that. Um, that's, uh, that said, um, um, one last thing on the word thing, one of my favorite phrases, which I got from my dad, um, was warp and woof and and but you say warp and weft yeah and this fills me with rage so can you explain (laughs) sorry (laughs) um well woof is the old older word for weft um weaving is uh, about combining um perpendicular threads. There's vertical threads and horizontal threads, or they're, they're warp threads that are held in tension on a, on most looms nowadays, they're all horizontal, but they're warp threads that are held in tension. And I think of them as kind of like the Y axis. And then there are the weft or woof threads that go back and forth uh, that are in the shuttle and that, that create the weaving. 
and the warp threads have to be really strong. The weft threads can be softer, depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Often they're exactly the same. Um, and so that's, that's where that thread, that the warp and woof or warp and weft uh, comes from. Yeah. I mean, it, it, my rage may come from the fact that I just like certain words and I get addicted to them. It may come from filial piety, or it may be that just because I'm a dog guy, anytime that we can get woof thing. into the conversation <laughs> is a good thing. Um, but, um, okay. So let's start from the beginning. Now we got all that stuff out of the way. Um, and I, when I say the beginning, I really mean the beginning. Um, uh, you make this point in the book, uh, that you could really call the Neolithic age or what we call the stone age, right? Um, the string age, because string was probably the more important technology in a lot of ways than the rock, <laughs> you know? Um, and so why don't you just sort of like, uh, let's start even before that. Um, when did we first start making clothes? Do we have a good date on that? And what were they made of? Well, the original clothes were made from animal skins, animal mm -hmm. hides. Uh, and they, and there you do have the stone, the scraping tools, very primitive, very early scraping tools. And that's during the ice age because you need, to not freeze it. And there are the first clothes are simple clothes. They're just draped hides, basically one right. step up from blankets. Um, but then people started to make what are called complex clothes. So that's when you fit to the body. And that was really important in surviving the ice age because that is much better for conserving heat. Then when the Ice Age, and this goes on for a long time, people are wearing clothes, but they're wearing these clothes made out of animal hides. Then the glaciers recede, the Ice Age is over, and that's when people start to make clothes from textiles. Because the thing about animal hides is if it's humid or it's warm, they're really terrible as clothes. Yeah. Um, and so there was, I don't know, 10,000, it was longer ago than that, maybe 15,000 years ago. It's, it, we don't have clothes from that age, that mm. far back. Um, people started to figure out how to make fabric and make clothes out of that. Um, because, the, I mean, you know, we don't know for sure, but the hypothesis is that because people had developed modesty, from all those years that were in clothes as protection. And right. so the idea of just going naked was not, not okay. So, uh, and there are some early artworks of people wearing like loincloths made of fox furs. And you can see the little fox tail and stuff like that. <laughs> so that, that, uh, yeah, that uh, is sort of symbolic, I guess. Yeah. So there's, um, but this Ice Age point, which is an interesting one, um, does that mean that in uh, equatorial, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, South America, uh, where presumably Ice Age wasn't that big a problem, that you got clothes much later? Or That's a good question. I, you know... The fabric of civilization is not about clothes. It's about textiles. I know, I know. I, I, I know, I know. That I, know. I was, 
it was happens that I was reading a book about clothes, uh, actually just last night. <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, I believe that is in fact the case, um, that, that you, you have more sort of, you do have decorating the body with paints and you develop kind of customs of modesty that aren't necessarily about fabrics. And there right. are places like, um, Tasmania where people, when it got warmer again, people, then they didn't, they ceased wearing clothes, uh, but that's an exception to the, uh, the rule. Right. I mean, I, and I, I, and I should be clear. I mean, I know it's about textiles yeah. Yeah. and all that. And, um, but it, it kind of gets to this point. So like, what is like, one of the things I mean, I, I really like it, which I had not really thought about much was what a breakthrough technology string and then rope was. Yeah. Right. And right. you, you right. talk about as when you think about what people used rope for, Rope was wildly important for improving yeah. the quality yeah. of people's yeah, lives. Yeah, right. right. So string and rope. And the earliest, even between the time that I submitted the manuscript and the time that I revised the manuscript, which was not a very long period, uh, there was actually a paper published where they have found string, a Neanderthal string that's 50,000 years old. And it mm. is definitely not just like a, some random vine. It's been twisted and then the two two strands have been plied together twisted together it's definitely string and string is a big deal and then you know the difference between rope and string is just size right you know? scaling um, up string scaling right? up string depending yeah. on what you make but it's a big deal because when you have string you can tie things together you can make nets you can make traps you can you know you can lift things off the ground and keep, you know, keep food and things where it won't rot on the ground. Um, you can tie an arrowhead onto an arrow. And I wondered how they'd done that. And then I recently came across some just fun thing on Facebook where people were doing these really beautifully kind of woven, tied things to connect rocks to things <laughs> so um and and so we had string for a really long time before we had textiles um which is another breakthrough but string is hugely important and really a survival technology early early survival technology just like the stone tools so yeah. that's why I say the, the Stone Age could be called the String Age. The difference is very little string survives because it right. rots, whereas uh, the stones survive. And in fact, even when we're getting into the development of textiles, of spinning and weaving, a lot of the early uh, evidence that we have is stone tools that were used or, or clay tools like uh, spindle whorls, which are were attached to, you have like something heavy that you poke a stick through and that makes it easier to spin. And the stick rots and the string rots, but you still have the spindle whorls. Yeah, I mean, I guess my only point was that, like, I mean, I understand that they sharpened flints and they, they right. made rocks sharper and all that kind of stuff, but 
the rocks were just lying around. They didn't invent yeah, right, rocks. Right, right? Yeah. A lot of that technology doesn't work unless you come up with the fastener, you know, or the projectile right. thing. Like for Right. If you want to do a projectile of a serious projectile, you need to be able to attach it to something and, and that how do you do that? And we don't really think about that when we think yeah, about no, it. Yeah, no, it just <laughs> never occurred to me that, you know, metallurgy comes way later. Oh yeah, metallurgy so is later. Yeah. yeah, so everything's connected basically with string for tens of thousands or however many thousands of years. And yeah. it's sort of yeah. interesting point I never thought of. It. But um, right, so one of the points you make is that sort of fascinating to me is that I forget the term you use for it, but um, this the, the textile technology um, writ large was not invented once in one place, right? A bunch of different cultures and different societies stumbled on, stumbled on it, came up with it on their own in different places. Can you sort of explain, like, where did it come up first? What? Yeah, so it, it depends on what you mean by it, you know? Yeah, sure. So, so for example, with spinning, I referred to, uh, didn't use the term, but what's known as a drop spindle which was invented in many different places, slight variations, but it's basically the same idea. You have a stick and you have a weight. And in some places, the weight is clay, some places it's stone, some places it's wood, some places it's at the top of the stick, some places at the bottom of the stick. But the basic idea is that you can twist, you can spin the stick, you can twist, turn it, and the weight keeps it going. It, you know, uh, maintains the the um, the angular momentum, and you can feed fiber, whether it's wool or cotton or whatever indigenous thing flax you're using. You can feed fiber onto that and twist it, and also lengthen it, so you can attach fibers to each other. Because when they come off the plant or they come off the animal, they're very short. But if you want to even have a string, you need to make them longer and you need to make them stronger. And so that's what spinning does. And this was invented all around the world. And museums have these spindle whirls from all over the place. Um, there are other technologies. Uh, well, another example of, of a technology is indigo, which is the kind of blue of blue jeans. I mean, nowadays right. it's synthesized in a lab, but Indigo comes from plants. It comes from all different kinds of plants. Chemically, it's the same. Uh, but there are various species of plants that were used in different places. So there's indigo, which was called woad uh, in Europe. There's what we think of as indigo, developed in India, hence the name. There's a version in Japan. There's a version in West Africa. Uh, and they use different plants. And this is a dyeing technology, and it's actually kind of complicated now. So mm -hmm. it's amazing that people figured it out all around the world, uh, making this beautiful blue dye. Um, so there's those kinds of things. Then there are other ones that were only invented once. Uh, so only once, as far as we know, did people figure out how to take the little wheel of the spindle whirl and turn it on its side and attach it with a string or some kind of belt to a bigger wheel. And then you could turn the big wheel once and the little wheel turns multiple times. And, and this developed, it, it was originally a spinning technology, um, but then it develops into a basic machine that's uh, called the belt drive that's in all kinds of 
different kinds of machines. And this seems to have been invented only once in China in a silk workshop. And I talk in Civilization about why that's weird and surprising and yet why it seems to have happened. And then it spread from there to India and then from India to Europe. And, you know, it was never invented in the new world. They had spinning. They had they had quite sophisticated textiles, but they didn't have a spindle world. Was silk only invented once? Um, well, as... The silk is some weird stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, it is. is. It, it is weird. Uh, silk as cultivated silk, mold, what's sometimes called mulberry silk, um, the silk we know was mm-hmm. invented far as we know only once it developed in china i mean you know when you say it was invented once you know there might have been multiple farmers in the same region sharing their knowledge but but it wasn't something that came all around the world and it is a really complicated process first of all you have this sort of co-breeding of the silkworms which are the uh the caterpillar stage of, of a moth that's called Bombex mori, uh, or the mulberry silkworm. And then you have the mulberry trees too. And they kind of are both bred selectively for certain characteristics. And so there's wild silk and there are wild silks elsewhere. Like in India, there's one called Tussa silk. Uh, but the mulberry silk is this beautiful white, um, sometimes yellow in its natural state. And it's the, the silkworms can't survive by themselves. They have to be tended by humans. And then when they, they build the cocoons on, so first they're fed the mulberry leaves by the humans. Then they build their cocoons on sticks provided by the humans. And then when they have the cocoons, all the coddling ends and they get dumped in <laughs> boiling water to kill the moths. So, so the moths won't emerge. And then, it's like a New Yorker cartoon. Right? This yeah, is great kind of, right until the end. <laughs> right, exactly. It's like the chicken, you know, whatever. Um, but and um, then you have to get that filament. Each cocoon is one long filament, uh, but they're very delicate and they're sticky. Put them in hot water to melt the sort of sticky gum. And then somebody has to get that filament off and combine them into threads. Uh, and then from one cocoon to the other. It's a very delicate process, very uh, difficult. And yes, it was invented only once and then it spread. And in fact, the uh, the Chinese guarded the, the secret of silk, you know, the, the sort of the, the silkworms very carefully and they were uh, smuggled out of China in I believe the 700s by a couple of Nestorian monks who brought them to uh, sort of the area around Byzantium. And that's how the silk got into Europe and uh-huh. later was cultivated in Europe as well. Yeah, I want to I get into protectionism of textile <laughs> trade secrets because that's a big part of the story. But I guess I, just to stay on the, the sort of beginnings of this stuff, um, you know, the phrase necessity is the mother of invention. Um, what 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 was the primary necessity that caused all of these different cultures to develop this stuff? Was it one necessity? Was it, you know, we, we talk about food, clothing, and shelter, and we tend to take all three for granted these days. But was it was it 
was it for clothing? Was it was it that the necessity was actually for string? And then people saw the string and said it is good, and it opened up doors to all sorts of other cool things you could do with the same concept. Do we have an idea about like? Yeah. So what gave birth to this? Idea? Right. So the way it seems to have developed is you have string for all the reasons we talk about. And one of the things that you start doing with string is making nets for catching things and carrying uh-huh. things. And so that's one element of inspiration. And then the other element is what we would call basketry, which is taking reeds or, you know, and weaving them together. So you get right. kind of two things going on. You get people making things like mats out of flat strips of whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that leads to kind of weaving. That's probably the earliest weaving. Uh, and then, but it's not a textile because it's rigid mm-hmm. and it's, and then you have this netting that develops the earliest textiles that have been recovered are tend to be more like nets or they're for what's called twining which is actually harder than weaving because Mm -hmm. what you do is you wrap now this is where you need visuals (laughs) (laughs) but but you picture the the picture the tension the the warp threads are in tension and instead of lifting, say, every other one and sticking weft through the channel that's created, what you do is you wrap the weft thread around. You have two weft threads and you wrap them alternately around each warp thread. I don't even know if people can picture this, but, but it, it's harder, but it will create, you can create a fabric that way. And mm-hmm. some of the earlier ones that we that have been discovered uh, are are like that. For example, I talk in the book about this 6,200-year-old indigo-dyed fragment from Peru uh, that seems to have been basically a sacrifice, uh, some type of ritual sacrifice. Um, and it's it's that kind of what's called twining. So you get, that seems to be the evolution. Uh, it comes it comes from netting and basketry, and then it becomes cloth. And then once you have cloth, there are lots of things you can do with it. Obviously, you can have clothes, you can have blankets, uh, you can have bandages, you can have tents, you can have bags that are... Sales, right? Sales, exactly. Yeah. Um, so one of the things, you know, I mean, one of the things I like about some of the stuff that you write, a lot of the stuff that you write is that it, 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 it's, it's an exercise in factual confirmation bias for me because, you know, (laughs) I have, I have these things that, you know, it's, it's, you know, when you talk to college students as much as I have over the last, you know, 25 years, they, they, they take all sorts of things for granted, or they, they, they believe a lot of the sort of cliches that define, you know, their worldview. And, one of the points you make, which also Matt Ridley has made in, in his recent book, is that there's no such thing as natural technology of any I mean, natural fabrics, natural fibers, yeah. right? I mean, as you're describing the the silk, presumably the moths 
originally could live without the help of humans. Absolutely, right? yeah. Right. Yeah. So now they're, they're these weird creatures that can only live. They're, they're the, the cows of the insect world in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. That's sort of the theme of, of my first chapter. Is right. The first chapter is on fiber, and mm-hmm. the theme of the first chapter is there's no such thing as natural fibers, and it's a. I mean, it gets into a lot of things, but it's about how humans altered nature to get so-called natural fibers. And then also some weird things that happened before humans arrived, particularly with cotton, where there were some really strange random events that made it a more versatile Yeah, plant. apparently Afri- African cotton showed up in Mexico for reasons yeah. known, can, maybe yeah. aliens. Um, <laughs> and if, 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 they hadn't, if they hadn't had that mixed marriage you wouldn't get the cotton that we have today? Is that basically yeah, if right? they hadn't had, Well, first of all, there's like 50 cotton species in the planet, roughly, and, which I never realized. And by, by species, I mean truly separate species. And only once did a cotton species actually develop fiber. Most of these, they're pretty, they're like, they look kind of like hibiscus flowers, but they have no, their seeds have no more fuzz on them than a peach does. You certainly wouldn't think of turning them into any kind of fiber, any kind of material for textiles. One time in Africa, someplace in Africa, um, there was a mutation that produced a fiber fiber on the seeds and the genome for that scientists call it the a genome and that that plant developed into two cultivated species uh, which are sometimes referred to as old world cotton one was cultivated by human beings in the indus valley and the other either in the Horn of Africa or in Southern Africa, it's a little disputed exactly where it was first cultivated, but it was an African plant. I'm agnostic on that debate. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's it's very disputed, you know, but (laughs) Africa, I just don't want people to think, I think Africa is so small that, that, you know, it's meaningful. (laughs) So you had this old world cotton with this age, you know. Okay. So that's when human beings come, they cultivate it. But long, long, long before that, Somehow this A genome cotton, which has fuzz on it, has fiber, gets to Mexico where it crossbreeds with a local cotton species that doesn't have fiber and it produces, which, which geneticists call D, and it produces this new version of cotton, which they call AD, which does have fiber and has twice as many uh, chromosomes, and so therefore is much more uh, versatile for human manipulation. Mm-hmm. And this species, this weird species, develops into two cultivated species by human beings called New World cotton, one which is developed in Mexico in the, um, in the Yucatan, and it is the Gisipian hirsutum, that is 90% of the cotton that's used today, and the other is developed on the coast, the, the west coast of Peru, or the only coast of Peru, um, <laughs> <laughs> on the coast of Peru, 
And it is uh, known as Cassipian barbadense, and it's the long staple, sometimes called Egyptian cotton or Sea Island cotton. Um, and it's basically the other 10% of what's cultivated today. There's a little bit of the Indian cotton still around, but mostly that's. Well, used to be that there were two hypotheses of how this weird thing happened, which what, one was, oh, it was back when the continents were together and dinosaurs roamed the earth and that's how it happened. And the other was, no, 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 no. It was much more recent. It was humans brought it on boats. It was mm -hmm. Thor Heyerdahl and the Kantiki sailing around in ancient times. But we can now date it with genetic and by, anal by analyzing the genes. And neither hypothesis is correct. It was much more recent than when the continents were together, but long before humans. So nobody knows. It's yeah. really weird. Um, and one of the, you know, a lot of the book is about, you know, cool things that people did with textiles, but another fun thing about doing the book was like meeting all these people who study this stuff and are discovering weird things like Neanderthal string and cotton genetics yeah, right, right up to the present day. Uh, but yeah, humans at, I mean, when you see the sort of, the, the, wild version of these cotton species, uh, uh, particularly the African cotton. I mean, they're very different from what you will see in a field in, in West Texas. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, they, they have much less fiber on them. They're not as white. Uh, they're a lot more, you know, a lot more seeds per unit of, of fiber. There's definitely been a lot of breeding. Yeah, and, so I mean... I mean, sorry, go on. Go on. No, go on, go on. I was just saying, I mean, this, this sort of gets to this point is that basically all, I mean, one of the points you make is that, you know, we always think of the agricultural revolution as being about food, but in many yeah. respects, it was at least equally about textiles, right? And, uh, you know, Matt Ridley has that great chart in his book about innovation showing what the wild versions of yeah. all the produce that we eat today look like. And, you know, it, the banana you get at the Kroger or the Safeway does not look anything like an herb banana, right? And yeah, and yeah, and I have a couple of similar pictures in my book. I have one that shows the cultivated versus wild versions of cotton, and I have uh, a couple of contrasting photos of sheep. Right. Uh, one, I mean, we don't know exactly what ancient sheep look like, but there are these what are called sway, you know, I, I don't know how it's pronounced, these, these kind of wild sheep that live in parts of Scotland uh, that still molt. And they're, anyway, I have a picture of one of those. They have a lot less uh, fleece. And then I have one of these giant merino sheep. That, <laughs> you know, it's, it's clearly nothing like that happens in nature left with right. some devices. Well, so that, but that's the, sort of the question I have is, is, is could any of the crops that we grow for textiles, let's say human beings disappeared tomorrow, how many of them could survive in a natural environment, right? I mean, because like clearly these poor moths at this point, the, you know, once the humans go, they're going to miss the opportunity to be boiled because that's the end of their line, right? <laughs> yeah. And I have to assume that, that cult of, the, the kind of cotton that agribusiness produces today probably couldn't survive without pesticides and special treatments and all or, or would be outcompeted by wild stuff, right? Well, you know, and what do you mean by survive? I mean, cotton does survive in the wild. 
I mean, there are wild versions of cotton. You can find them growing. Right, but not the GMO ones is my point. But, But they are, I think what you would have is not a disappearance of cotton, but a gradual um, degradation of cotton. Sure. If, I mean, from from our commercial point of view. In other words, it would it would not be uh, quite as um, quite as white. Quite as, you. Uh, I mean, like those sheep. And, they're the in a, in, a, in a state of nature. Yeah. Those sheep are going to be the appetizers for predators pretty quickly, <laughs> right? I mean, or like cows. I mean, I always tell people, you know, you want to get people to stop eating beef. It means you basically want the extinction of large numbers of yeah, cows yeah, because right. they have no, I mean, maybe some of the bulls would do okay, but basically yeah. dairy cows are not getting away from bears and mountain lions and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say uh, that I'm an expert on sheep raising, um, but, but those, but those uh, merino sheep don't look terribly fleet of foot <laughs> yeah um okay so let's you know i i got your book on kindle and um and first thing i did was search for the name hayek and he's not in there he's not in there yet. he's not in there and yet the whole thing just screams sort of hayekian to me in terms of the insane amount of trial and error over thousands of years that go into this stuff i mean can like can you give us a sense of the scale i mean how long were we just doing the thing with the rock and the stick before we move to the the next stage of these things i mean it's 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 yeah. many generations of yeah, backbreaking so got, crappy work yeah so you've got maybe I mean, if we go to Neanderthal string, if that's where we start at 50,000 years, yeah. then you've got, so that's like 50,000 years ago, then maybe, this is rough, but maybe around 10,000 years ago, you start to have uh, agriculture, you start to have domesticated sheep, uh, which uh, the sheep is the second domesticated animal after the dog. Well, some people mm-hmm. say reindeer, but, <laughs> and, um, and, and I, they seem to have been domesticated first for meat and milk, but then there's some dispute that maybe they, they were also even getting, um, wool from them during that period because they were molting and you, mm-hmm. you didn't actually even have to have shears or anything. You would just like, they would scratch right. up against the bushes and their fur would come off and you could take the fur and make stuff out of them. So that's, you start to have serious work and things around 10,000 years ago. Um, the, and probably actual textiles and weaving were, I'm not, exactly weaving, but twining and making cloth probably happened around that time as well. Um, and that may be because of this thing I talked about earlier, which is the sort of the end of the ice age and the need for, you still want clothes, but you don't want them to be made out of leather or, or hides and fur. Um, and then once, once you're there, you have a long period of, 
you know, thousands of years of refinement, uh, development of better ways of weaving, of uh, different kinds of dyes. Um, and although some of that starts pretty early, so, mm. <laughs> well, it's like, so say, let's say 7,000 years ago, maybe you have the development of indigo. We know it's, we know we have six, 6,200 years ago in Peru, they had indigo, um, and other types of dyes. And then the, uh, and then it start. then you start to have this divergence because a lot of things happen earlier in China than in other places. Yeah. Printing um, press, lots of things. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. I mean, everything basically, they invented everything. Um, and that's true in the case of textiles as well. Um, so you're, t you're talking, you know, 3000 years ago, once you're into that period, then you're starting to have all around the world, different kinds of weaving, spinning, dyeing. Um, one of the late things is knitting. Knitting doesn't come around to like the middle ages. So. <laughs> but the thing driving that stuff at that point is less, survival and more trade right i mean now you're talking about economics well, it's, it's, yes yes exactly and you start to have i mean you know i i guess blogging this week on bala conspiracy and uh which is odd because it's not about my stuff isn't really about law but i um and i the post today i talk about these tablets these cuneiform tablets we have from the what are called the old Assyrian archives, which are uh, were found in the homes of expat traders in a place in Anatolia called Kanesh. Uh, and these guys were from a place called Assur, which was about 750 miles away. And they would bring textiles and also tin, because this is the Bronze Age, and tin mm -hmm. is very important. You need tin to make bronze. Uh, from, well, they were collected. They were sort of middlemen. They were collected in their city and they bring it up there. And so we have these archives and they're 4,000 years old and you have quite a sophisticated textile trade going on there. Lots of sophisticated uh, institutions with contracts and agents and ways of collecting debts and ways of recording things uh, uh, and literacy, you know, widespread literacy, uh, which is unusual. So, so if you start to have textiles used, I don't, sometimes they're traded, sometimes they're not, but they're, they're beyond simple necessity. I mean, certainly mm -hmm. even those that are used for necessity, that are necessities, you see, dyeing done you see patterning in the weaves you see things that are making them decorative and meaningful you also just see different kinds of textiles and people yeah. realize oh my gosh there are different ways to do this stuff and they can reinvest it all of it i mean i guess what i'm getting at with the hayek thing is that you know the way this stuff the, the example i often use is the is food. You know, there's an enormous amount of embedded knowledge in yeah. food. And there's not a chef in the world who probably really understands how much trial and error went into the ingredients in their food. A lot of people 
ate stuff they shouldn't have eaten and died to, to <laughs> right. get, you know, your, right. your yeah. duck all yeah. orange on your plate. And, right. and the, dis- the process of discovery of cooking, yeah. the process of discovery of aging meat in a way that doesn't make it go rancid, the process of discovery of cultivating spices to hide semi-rancid meat. I mean, there's all of these things. And the, that information is passed along. It's only passed along in books or on paper very late in this process. Yeah, very and, late. And, right. So and I actually how, write about that. Right. That's what I'm so, trying to get at is, is how this how the, how is this knowledge transferred? You know? Well, it's generally transferred in person. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I mean, it's either traded, that is, it's embodied in a good and you buy the good. Uh, and so you don't get the knowledge, you get the, the product of the knowledge. Or it, it's, it's transferred person to person through uh, kind of apprenticeships or mothers teaching daughters how to spin. Or, um, and there is a tremendous amount of trial and error. You see it, it's, I write about it more in context of dying because mm-hmm. dying, which is very much through most of history, is more like cooking than something that uh, a chemical lab would do is this very trial and error process. And it's something where uh, you're, you're smelling your, uh, you know, you don't have to, you don't have pH strips, you know, you're, you're, you're having to carefully observe the, what things look like, how they sound, how they smell. Um, and there's a lot of trial and error. If I add this, what do I get? If I add that, what do I get? Um, if I combine these two things, what do I get? Uh, and so you have centuries and centuries, millennia, really, of that type of, of work, figuring out that uh, if I die with this, it looks great until I wash it and then it all goes right. away. Or uh, it's easier to die protein fibers, which they wouldn't have used that term, but wool and silk than it is to dye cellulose fibers like cotton or hemp, things like that. And you have to use more tricks to get those things to dye. Um, And then when you start to have sort of more, you can get a long way with just that sort of trial and error without Mm -hmm. a deeper understanding and so the history of dying sort of shows both the power of that type of, of understanding and its limits. Because when you really start to get the breakthroughs is when you have dying and chemistry as right. a science grow up together. Dying is the... Uh, the, so the scientific you know, method you. in some ways is, is part of the story. We get the scientific method, at least in some part, from this kind of process, not entirely with Textiles, but importantly with textiles, right, but also with right. food and, and a bunch well, of other things. Well, and yeah. in the early days, you know, when I don't know about you, but when I've ever heard about the history of chemistry, there was always this emphasis on alchemy. And the right. thing about alchemy is like it never really works, right? People discover stuff, right. but they don't discover the philosopher's stuff. But what I now discovered who's been now is <laughs> yes, exactly. And I see we're both drinking Diet Coke. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we that dying was much more important in some ways than alchemy. Alchemy is like all sexy because intellectuals did it. Right, right. But but what people when you actually start to get 
the beginnings of scientific understanding in, say, the 17th century, the job you wanted, the best job if you were into chemistry, was to be the inspector of the dye works in France. It was heavily <laughs> subsidized by the government. Um, uh, but that was the best job for science, you know, because you could, you, could, you could do your science and then there was this belief that it would help dye. Now, the truth is that it didn't really help dye until the 19th century. But there was this kind of, because they spent a lot of time trying to relate the colors in fabric to Newton's optics. And actually, you can't get there from here. Uh, to, to go from physics to colors on cloth, you need quantum mechanics, apparently, right. um, which obviously doesn't come till later. But as people started, you get Lavoisier and you start to get this idea of elements and understanding element, how elements combine and trying to figure them out. Uh, a lot of the people who were doing that work were working in their day jobs, so to speak, in dye houses and using scientific methods, if not scientific understanding, to produce right. better dyes, uh, having controlled experiments and that sort of thing. So it was sort of like cooking scientifically. Um, so anyway, and going back to Hayek, I mean, the thing that comes through a lot of this all of this sort of stuff is the importance, not just of trial and error, but of, of tacit knowledge, I guess that's mm -hmm. Milan, you bet, sure. <laughs> but of, of embedded, you know, the local knowledge, the understanding right. and how difficult it is to transfer that. Um, even when it does get transferred, it's often not transferred exactly. And certainly um, how much of it is, involved in even things that are very simple. So every piece of cloth has an enormous amount of knowledge embedded in it. Yeah, I mean that, and so that's sort of the thing I, I just sort of find fascinating is because in some ways, the way we talk about the Enlightenment, and I'm, depending on which Enlightenment you're talking about, I'm pro-Enlightenment, um, but uh, um, it's, you know, sort of like Heidegger with the metaphor of light. You know, so they think, oh, some, someone turned on a light switch and all of a sudden they saw the scientific method. When in reality, there's this incredibly long tail, a root behind this inflection point in the late 1600s, early 1700s, whatever you want to call it, that um, you needed to sort of hit a critical mass of knowledge and wealth and trial and error. And all of a sudden, you've got these best practices that click in and it gives this opportunity for innovation in ways that we've never seen before. And um, I'm a big fan of looking at things that like people have looked at for millions or for a long time and think, oh, this can't be improved upon. And then boom, it gets wildly improved upon. And that's why I want to talk about the Kitty Poo Club. Changing my cat's litter is so easy and not messy. I don't mind it at all, said nobody ever. It's time to say goodbye to the litter box as you know it. And hello to the Kitty Poo Club. Kitty Poo Club is a all-in-one litter box solution designed to be convenient for you. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. When the month is up, 
Just recycle the box and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have and what type of litter they prefer. And Kitty Poo Club has a no risk guarantee and you can easily customize or cancel at any time. We used it. We actually had to add Gracie, who's getting up there. She's the chunky queen cat, is uh, um, getting up there and getting to the spot where we have the the normal litter boxes was getting to be a little bit, a bit of a problem for her. Um, I think many of us, as we put on some pounds and get a little older, can can sympathize to some extent. And uh, so we've added a, a, an extra litter box upstairs and uh, and we use Kitty Poo Club and it worked great. No hassle, no mess. Um, and she approves, which is the, really the most important thing because if she didn't, um, there would be problems. So right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off. That's 20% off your first order when you set up auto ship by going to kittypooclub.com and entering promo code DINGO. Just go to kittypooclub.com and enter promo code DINGO to get 20% off when you set up auto ship. That's kittypooclub.com. And don't forget to enter promo code DINGO, D-I-N-G-O, at checkout. We thank Kitty Poo Club for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Um, let's fast forward and talk a little bit about the economics about this stuff. One of the things that you do, which I'm a big fan of doing, although I have a I have a question about it, but let's just sort of start with the basics. It's really difficult to talk about people's wealth in the past because, yes. you know, even even adjusting for constant dollars, it's very difficult to talk about wealth in, say, the year 200. Um, and the, I don't know who first came up with it, but, you know, the guy, our friends at Human Progress do this a lot. And, um, and I can't remember, the, there's a Swedish guy who does this, or at least a Scandinavian guy, measuring things and the amount of hours it takes to do it which is right. something that we can understand in our own lives, right? And so the famous one is light, where like 200, 300 years ago, the amount of labor or effort put into for like one lumen of light was this crazy long period of time. And now you can get 10 million lumens of light in a nanosecond. And that helps you sort of understand that, like the amount of time it takes to churn butter, you know, is just monstrous. So right. like, talk about like how long it would take to um, uh, weave, I'm assuming that's the right word, um, a pair of jeans with the number of threads that we have in them today in, in say, 500 years ago or whatever time period you think yeah. illustrates the point. Well, what I, what I do in the book, um, so we managed to hit on the, the themes. of So we talked about fiber and the theme there is humans change nature. And we talked about dye and the theme there is Power a little homework. Trial and error. Yeah, so now I'm we're trying to make go this an organic up. conversation yeah, rather right, than you know. Right, exactly. Weave it all together. Anyway, so and to then, speak. So, so the the second chapter after fiber is about thread, and we've talked some about thread, a little bit about spinning, but the the theme there is kind of like why was the industrial revolution such a big deal? I mean, about labor, and so what what we don't really appreciate is first of all, how much thread there is in any given piece of cloth. Right. Uh, because when we think about thread, we think about sewing thread. And if we think about yarn that is 
that's the term that's usually used when you're turning thread into a textile. Uh, we tend to think about like people knitting and the, the yarn is pretty fat and uh, you can knit a, a pretty big thing with not with relatively small, uh, small amounts. But if you think about something like your jeans, to make the denim, to make a pair of jeans requires about six miles of thread for to weave the fabric. And in a pre-industrial context, when the fastest spinners were Indian women using the chark, it would have taken about a hundred hours to spin that much thread. Uh, enough for a to, to make a pair of pants, a pair of jeans. Um, take another example, uh, a bandana. A bandana is 22 inches square. It has about a mile and a half of thread in it. And it would take about 24 hours to spin that. And those are the fastest spinners. The people who are using a drop spindle or even a European uh, spinning wheel tended to be a little bit slower, a drop spindle much slower. So when you're getting to something like a Viking sail, it took longer to make the sail than it did to build the ship. Yeah. Uh, and that's not just spinning, of course. That's also, first of all, shearing the sheep or plucking the sheep, cleaning the fiber, uh, turning it into thread, then weaving it. Then, you know, those Viking sails have those stripes, you think of them as having stripes, and the reason for that is that the weave the loom's not big enough to weave a whole sail in one piece, so you oh, have okay. to sew pieces together. So, uh, making cloth in the past took enormous amounts of time, and the big time sink was the thread. It was the spinning. Mm. Um, it took something like in the early 18th century, it took about 20 or 30 spinners to supply one weaver. So the result is throughout history, women were spinning like all the time, uh, unlike weaving and other aspects of textile production. Uh, this is very, as they say, gendered. Uh, yeah. It's always done by women. Uh, uh, I mean, nowadays the some men spin, but for hobbies or in certain indigenous cultures, but it's not the tradition. It's just because like, they're living in the Andes in Peru and their mom was a spinner and they learned to do it because, you know, tourists like it or whatever. <laughs> um, but, um, but the, uh, but throughout history, women were spinning like all the time. And the thing about the drop spindles is they're slow, but they can produce good thread. And they're also something you can like carry with you where, you know, you can do it while you're walking. I mean, I can't, I'm a terrible spinner. I did try it, uh, but, but, uh, but people could do it sort of all the time, which was a good thing because there was never enough thread and they needed to do it all the time. So that suddenly when you understand these numbers, you understand why the industrial revolution started with spinning, why spinning and thread was such a big deal. Because it was this major choke point yeah. in the production of cloth. And then cloth is not just clothes, it's sails, it's sacks, it's blankets, it's curtains, it's bandages, it's it was all these different things. So it's it's a huge leverage point. If you can reduce the cost of thread, 
you can reduce the cost of living uh, and you can enable lots of other kinds of activities, business activities, uh, just life activities. Yeah, I mean, um, so he, and this is just a pure sort of factual question. This, this reducing things to increments of time, which I think is a very useful thing, as I said, to illustrate this stuff. Does it ever, do these metrics ever take into account that life expectancy was so much lower? <laughs> right? So like, I mean, an, the, an yeah. hour of my life is a much smaller, maybe not my life, but the typical American's life is a much smaller fraction of their lifetime than um, someone who's statistically actuarially probably going to die by the time they're 35 or 40, right? You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, not that I know of. And the other thing I want to make a point about this is that I actually, when I was looking at this and looking at all these, these spinning times, and I have a chart in the book of all the different, you know, how long would it make to make a bed sheet and a toga and all these different things, combining research from tons of different scholars studying different types of spinning. Um, it's, it's really about productivity too. Right. It's not just about how, you know, how much would that cost to buy, uh, but it, it's how valuable is your time. So one of the things that you'll see from uh, some feminist scholars is they'll study spinning because it was a major women's activity. And they'll say, this is so lousy. These women were exploited by the patriarchy. Look at these horrible wages they made. Well, okay, they probably were exploited by the patriarchy and they definitely made terrible, terribly low wages. But the reason was that they could do so, they could produce so little in an hour. Yeah. And, and, and when you look at the cost of producing, say, wool cloth in, in England in the 17th century, okay, the biggest component was the actual wool. But then secondly, almost the same, was the spinning. It wasn't like the spinners were getting nothing and the evil cloth maker was taking right. it all as profits. No, his profit was much smaller. The spinners were getting a huge amount of the, the total cost, but per hour, it didn't amount to a hill of beans. It was, it was tiny because they could produce so little in an hour. And if you want to have a story about the patriarchy, the 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 patriarchy story is why didn't they why couldn't they do other jobs you know why why were women kept out of guilds and you know why couldn't they I mean in England some of them were weavers and women weavers made more than women spinners but but there were places where their guilds often kept women out of this. so but it's not because people were being mean to them right. uh, it's because the productivity was so low. And so then when you have the industrial revolution, uh, people who are working in those spinning plants, which by our standards are horrible places to work and you're getting paid peanuts, but they're making more than they would have been making before because they're so much more productive. Um, so Irving Crystal once said that there's no such thing as a non-capitalist economic theory which I always think about, I shouldn't say always, I, sometimes other issues cross my mind, but um, I think about a lot. And, um, and in some ways, I think there's, there's a real insight into there in that, that because economics is about the study of efficiencies and prices and these kinds of things. And so 
non-capitalist, non-market-based economics is actually about imposing externalities and, and mucking with those processes. But I always stumble on Marx's labor theory of value. And because, uh, and, and, and weirdly enough, it, 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 it gets pollinated by uh, a speech by the High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, where he basically says he was a cobbler and he, and he measured all of his output in the amount of time it took him to build a shoe, to make a shoe or a really nice shoe. And that he was exploited by the system because he was basically selling units of his life to somebody else in these products. And, um, and I guess what I'm, I'm trying to figure out why, why this comes to mind, but it, it seems to me that like the, the, the incredible investment of people's time into these things, um, it, it gives some, it, for me, it gives some heft to the labor theory of value. I mean, I think it's wrong to then say that the, you know, as Marx does, that the inventor or the, the factory builder um, or uh, the guy who actually buys the different pieces of innovation isn't providing any value and he's just exploiting people because putting that stuff together is part and parcel of innovation. But it's a hugely important, um, but it's, it's an interesting way to, to think about these things. And and now I can't remember exactly why I brought this up. Well, let me help you out here, thank Jonah. You. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, you know, the, the labor theory of value was the pre- predominant theory, not just in Marx. I mean, it's in the Adam Smith, it's in the wealth sure. of nations. I mean, it's what people thought because it's intuitively, it seems right. But I've just explained to you why it's wrong. <laughs> Maybe that's why it were, came into my if, head. If, <laughs> yeah. If it were right, then a woman spinning for an hour using a drop spindle uh, would be paid the same as a woman working an hour in a factory with with spinning machines. <laughs> uh, and so what displaced the labor theory of value as the sort of what people realized, and, and I'm drawing a blank, there's like a famous, econ- Ricardo, I think. Ricardo, right. No, is it Ricardo? I don't remember. It's a famous economist came up with this and everyone's going to think I'm an idiot because I can't remember who it was, starting with my husband. Uh, but was the what's really important is, in terms of wages, is marginal productivity. Mm-hmm. Is what is your, you know, what value are you creating right. in 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 your in that extra hour um and then and then that undercuts the idea of the labor theory value because the value the actual value is what people are willing to pay for it and that can change with tastes it can change with technologies it can change with alternative goods you know if people want to spend their money on video games and don't want to go to the movies it doesn't mean that uh the move, you know, the movies take less time to make or anything like that. So um, that I think, I think that's yeah. And I, I what, think part of what, it, I guess, is what, that one of the you know, I, I'm obsessed. I, I like my Pollyani. I just never pronounce his name. Um, and the good one or the bad one? The good one. And I, I <laughs> and I like um, you know, and I'm big. I'm a was hugely influenced by Deirdre McCloskey and. Um, and it, it sort of feels a little bit sort of like Malthus. You know, Malthus was actually pretty on point retrospectively. 
He was yeah, just completely right. wrong prospectively. And right. it feels to me like the labor theory of value perspective in a subsistence society, there's a lot of value. There, there, there's, there's something there, but it, the more. It's true. However, I will say one of the things that you realize when you study the history of textiles is how important capital is mm-hmm. always, uh, working capital specifically. I mean, later it's capital equipment and, and things like machines. But if you go back to those old Assyrian archives, which I will mention, bad Polanyi, Carl Polanyi, wrote <laughs> something totally wrong based on polite people say, like this Assyriologist that I learned about this from, say, oh, well, he just, very few of the tablets had been had been translated. He had limited information, but he wrote this thing. It was total BS about how this wasn't really a market. And it's like totally a market. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's totally like guys going and giving their stuff to agents, on, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, with terms of how much they'll have to pay back and collecting debts and all this stuff. So anyway, one of the problems with textiles is that's a long period between when you shear the sheep and when you sell the cloth. And there's a lot of stages in it. And those stages require working capital, many of them. And so throughout the history of textiles, you have people who are providing some kind of capital, middlemen of various sorts, who then take a cut from it. Um, And they're absolutely essential. Now, some of them are also parts of the production. So, for example, in in the traditional British wool trade, you would have putting out systems where you would have the manufacturer would buy the wool and then give it to the spinners, pay them a certain amount, but he's funded the the raw materials and he would pay them a certain amount for their labor. And then he would take that thread and he would weave it. But somebody has to make that bridge between the present and the future. And that's called capital. (laughs) And, and you can't really function without it. Uh, And you see that throughout textile history and, and traders, merchants are very important as well. And, yeah, I mean, you get banking, you get the corporation instruments or various sorts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that stuff I always think is so fascinating is the, the, just in the entire world of commodities, whether it's textile stuff or it's, you know, agriculture that you eat, um, you have to sort of flatten out the, the risk because one bad weather thing can ruin it. And so you create a commodity or, uh, or, a credit system where um, you can hedge against downside risk, and that requires somebody who's willing to make long-term bets, and that yeah. completely, you know, creates in a lot of ways modern capitalism. And um, and I think that th- this is, you know, I'm not a, I, I, just to be clear, I'm not a proponent of the labor theory of value. I just I think about it a lot. I understand I think it's an, you're like, it's why is it wrong? You know, what's, yeah. what's and going then, on there? Then, it seems so right, but it's not right. <laughs> it's like, no, I know it's not yeah. right, and I, I also I know, make no, it. But, 
I also make a case that there's a, a soup song of anti-Semitism in it as well. But um, but we at least in Marx, yeah, probably yeah. probably not in Smith. Um, yeah. And um, but I think it's really worth sort of come. One of the things I really like about the book and this approach is coming at these things that can sound like just broad, you know, uh, boilerplate principles and actually getting granular and how these principles kind of emerge from the facts on the ground through lived experience over many, many, many generations. And one of the places that really um, emphasizes that approach as well is Act in Line. So for those of you who don't know, Act in Line is the flagship podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, dedicated to the promotion of a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. With episodes released every Wednesday, Acton Line brings together writers, economists, religious leaders, thinkers, journalists, newsmakers, and more in conversations that bridge the gap between good intentions and sound economics. By demonstrating the compatibility of faith, liberty, and free markets, Conversations on Act in Line reveal how economic freedom is essential to creating an environment in which religious freedom can flourish, but also that the market can function only when people behave morally. Faith and freedom must go hand in hand. To subscribe to Act in Line, just visit Acton, that's A-C-T-O-N, dot org, slash dingo, or just search for Act in Line on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are available. That's acton.org slash dingo to subscribe. We thank the fine folks at Acton Line for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. All right, so I, I know we're going long, um, but uh, you know, one of the things which I didn't get to get into, uh, it's in the apocrypha of my last book because we had to cut down my book about 60% when I was done, um, is I'm, I'm fascinated by sumptuary laws. I oh, am yeah. fascinated also by the role of guilds in, 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 uh, early medi in medieval Europe and right. then how Which they Which I really to slighted guilds is something I didn't get into in the book, but I read a lot about it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I remember, I think it's in McCloskey, but she may be quoting somebody else. Um, the, the role of protectionism in textiles was in Europe was there's a lot of bloodshed associated with it. I mean, not, we talk about the Luddites, but you know, um, the, the introduction of competition that you get, um, in, you know, after the industrial revolution blows up a lot of politics in, in a lot of ways and blows up a lot of lifestyles and settled communities in all sorts of ways that, you know, we now have the word Luddite for. So if you could talk about it a little bit, take, take your pick, a dealer's choice about yeah, that stuff. Well, there's a lot of different, I mean, the history of textiles is very much the history of protectionism, right. industrial policy, industrial espionage. All of these things are throughout. Um, also forced migration, <laughs> other, other unsavory things. It's not, it, it's not just uh, in the American South. It's uh, other places as well. Um, well, let's start with the Luddites. Who were the Luddites? They were weavers in the very early 19th century who protested against power looms and did so violently rioted, broke up machines and stuff. 
And this sort of violent protest against losing your livelihood was a common thing throughout history and throughout right. uh, textile history. But the, there's an irony about the Luddites, which is that the reason that they, they had these jobs, or one reason that, that they had these jobs and these jobs were well paid, was because the earlier disruption of the spinning machines. Because having enough thread to weave had been a bottleneck. And so there weren't as many jobs for weavers and they weren't as well paid as they might have been. And then when suddenly you have spinning machines, and you have this uh, uh, great supply of thread for making, making cloth, the weavers enjoyed what uh, the economic historian Beverly Lemire, who studies textile history, calls a golden heyday. <laughs> but the golden heyday was not to last. And they were kind of snobby about it because they were kind of, you know, industrial aristocrats. And they were yeah. like living high on the hog. Um, and then, of course, the same thing happened to their industry and they didn't like it. So, and in the earlier period with the spinning machines, there were similar protests, very, very, very similar to the Luddite protests, both peaceful political petitioning and violent anti-machine riots. Um, this is a common thing. You also see classic protectionism uh, where people don't want to have foreign goods come in. Um, and the extreme example of that, which I've written about elsewhere and actually have a video on YouTube about it, was uh, the reaction to Indian cotton prints, which mm -hmm. hit Europe in started in the 16th century, but they're really big in the 17th and 18th century. And they were like nothing Europeans had ever seen before. They were lightweight, comfortable, soft, washable. The colors were amazing. And affordable. And they were, and I'm sorry? And affordable, right? I mean, and that's affordable. part of the problem. Well, they came yeah. at every price point, basically. Uh -huh. And they were, um, they were prints, which was also new. Because in, previously, if you wanted to have like a design, it either had to be woven in, which was incredibly expensive, or embroidered, which was also expensive because you're using silk thread. So right. you didn't have you had, you would have like checks and plaids and stuff, but you wouldn't and uh, you know stripes, but you wouldn't have like flowers unless you were really rich. So when Indian cotton prints came in, there were this amazing, highly competitive product. Uh, and there were all these East India companies, the British, French, Dutch East India companies were bringing them in. Well, in Britain, they didn't like it. The wool and linen industries didn't like it, so they were banned. In Holland, they were more free traders. They were cool with it. They didn't have a problem with it. And that's one reason if you go on the Rijksmuseum uh, site, you can find the best pictures of these. And in France, they were insane. Yeah, they uh, because the silk industry was really felt threatened, and they basically treated calicos as they were known, the way the U.S. treats cocaine. Mm -hmm. uh, they banned them. They were they had enormous criminal penalties, and it wasn't just the literal prints from India. It was any kind of print, even if they were made by French companies on French cloth. It was any kind of cotton material, even if it was completely plain, because it was the silk industry that didn't want this competition. 
And it lasted for 73 years. And mm-hmm. they kept ratcheting up the penalties. People could go to the galleys for trafficking in these cloths. Uh, it, it was the most extreme example of prohibition and protectionism that I've come across. And I'm really surprised. One of the things that actually attracted me to writing about textiles was when I heard this. And I was like, I spent 10 years as editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine, and I didn't know about this? How is this not famous? Yeah. <laughs> No, there's that line. Yeah. There's a line somewhere that in in one of Deirdre's books where she talks about the number of people who were either sent to prison or or hung for being involved in the trade of, you know, I, I think it was calicos, and it was just like really, yeah, probably. Um, yeah. And um, and I guess we should we've we've avoided all rank punditry in all of this, but I'll I'll I will close out with one quick question about this. Um, we are now seeing um a lot of talk, at least. Uh, some of it celebratory, some of it full of woe, um, about the disillusion of the fusionist consensus of sort of right. conservative, libertarian, limited government. Uh, you know, Tucker Carlson says that basically you and your friends ran Washington for 30 years, um, which I always love giving libertarians a hard time about. And, um, uh, and you're seeing bunch of Republican senators, basically all of whom want to capture the Trump right. following, talking about cre- turning the GOP into a, a multi-ethnic workers party and that we're going to do everything we can to save jobs and protect jobs. And um, you have the, it's a, it's a luxury coming from the libertarian side is that you get to stay above these ugly fights in some ways, or at least you don't feel betrayed by the people who are changing this because you weren't part of the tribe to begin with. But um, what do you make of all of it? Do you, is there, is there, how to put this, is there an industrial policy that you think could live side by side with sort of limited government libertarian principles, or is it just all folly? Well, okay. First of all, you know, there's this book from 1998 called Future and its Enemies, which even though it's incredibly dated in some ways, is very up-to-date in others. <laughs> because This is one of the reasons because, I'm asking you about this. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, my friend Rick Henderson uh, says that you guys should give me like 15 cents every time you say dynamism on the show. <laughs> <That would be laughs> uh, but um, so, you know, clearly I think that if you are concerned with the long-term welfare of your society, healthiness of of society, you need to allow people to discover new and better ways of doing things, which includes free trade. I mean, I wouldn't call it industrial policy. I think we, sometimes you need to pay off the losers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you don't you know, mean that in a pejorative sense. It's just the people who are no, getting the, the people, short end of the stick. On, yeah, I'm a journalist. I'm a loser. You know, it's, it's no question. I mean, I'm at the, I'm in the, you know, the one percent of my profession, which is to say, I still can make a living at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is it the living I made 20 years ago? No, it's not yeah. anywhere close to it. Uh, you know, I'm an in, I'm I don't work for a think tank. I I am self-employed. 
Um, but I write for Bloomberg Opinion, which is like one of the last places that actually pays, you know, 1990s rates for columns. Um, so I understand about the, the negative side of dynamism. Um, and, and by the way, you know, people think, oh, well, you get everything. Your husband is a professor. No, my husband is a lecturer with no tenure, no, you know, he gets on, he doesn't know, he doesn't, can't know for sure he's going to be employed next term. So, you know, we live in this insecure world. I mean, I've seen him with the sandwich board and the bell saying, we'll lecture for food. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, uh, we're, you know, we're incredibly lucky, but it's not like I'm immune to all of this. Um, so yes, I understand what you, I was saying you have to pay off the loser. So one of the things libertarians hate is farm subsidies mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't like them either. And they're distortionary in all these ways. But then when I, if I think of them in a different way, if I think of them as that's the cost we paid in order to have industry move forward mm -hmm. and agriculture, you know, that we didn't become uh, a, a country where we were trying to keep everybody on the farm. Maybe it's worth it. Uh, that, but that's a very different way of thinking about it than saying we want to have protectionism or we want to pick winners. It's more like, we want to, if you will, we talk about you know, working capital, providing the the bridge from right. now to then. Uh, you know, I think that's how you have to think about this: is what can you do uh, to soften the blow? Make, to soften the blow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I, I think that's right. I mean, like, but what you hear from a lot of these people is, we're just gonna, you know, step one, value work. Step two, question mark, question mark, question mark. Step three, um, keep all the factories as they are with full employment, right? And that stuff, yeah. that's I mean, not... And one thing that people are so incredibly ignorant about is, you know, there is tons of manufacturing in the U.S. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's like trying to keep all the spinners using drop spindles instead of having, I mean, they have spinning machines. You know, right. it's, it's capital intensive. It's been capital intensive for a long time, and it's even getting more and more capital intensive. And you know, you are seeing things like in textiles. You're seeing and apparel. You're seeing more onshoring, which is manufacturing closer to the consumer, and often manufacturing in the U.S. or manufacturing at least in Latin America rather than in Asia. Um, but the number of jobs involved is small because the way you do that is with various technologies that allow you to do a lot with a, a relatively small staff. And my favorite example of this has nothing to do with textiles. It's like four people on a shift make all the M&Ms <laughs> sold in, in the Americas. You know, it, it and it's like billions of evidence yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um it manufacturing is not the answer to employment and the right. other thing is i think you know there's also meaning you know i respect anybody who works i mean i respect all work and i think one of the great things about american culture traditionally is that we 
or at its best, I should say, not always traditionally, is that the norm is to engage with people who provide services to you as equals in an exchange, not as, you know, servant class or, you know, uh, sort of lower than you because they're doing your nails or something like this. And I've heard uh, comments from the people who, in the good old days before COVID, did my nails about, about different ways of being treated by people from different cultures. Uh, not everybody shares that. So uh, I think that's very important. Uh, but when you say respect work, that doesn't mean make work. That doesn't mean create right. jobs that are not truly valuable. Um, and so I, I I think it means, I mean, one of the things that's really amazing is how disrespectful of the jobs that people actually do. Many of the people who advocate respecting work are. Yeah. <laughs> you know. No, I think that's right. And, uh, and just to tie it together, because we, we're not going to do sumptuary laws, but uh, there was a great bit in by Daniel Borston in one of his, the America, I think the national experience, you know, that trilogy he did yeah. where he quotes, I quoted my book, but it's some Hungarian diplomat who's traveling around the U S in the 1820s or 1830s. And he is horrified and I could have his nationality wrong or the decade doesn't matter, but he's horrified because when he walks around American cities like Boston or New York, he can't tell by the clothes that people are wearing what station of life they're in. Yeah. Because in America, textiles are so abundant that, and, and your, the clothes you wear aren't your uniform for your station in life, the way right. they were in some traditional societies in Europe at that time. Um, and I think that's part, part of the thing that, you know, technological innovation, dynamism, as you might put it, um, works well with the American character and American culture is that by liberating people from their assigned station in life, you encourage a culture that says you're supposed to take people as you find them and see people as equals and worthy of respect until proven otherwise. Now, obviously we've been hypocritical about that. We've fallen short on that, but that's something deep. And I think in the American culture, that you sorry, what you're talking about, how you treat people who do your nails, you know, the, they're, they're aristocratic, kind of cultures where the idea of actually talking to someone who's doing your nails would be beneath you. And that's not how it works in, in America. And I think that's one of the things, one of the great things about American dynamism and American you know, entrepreneurialism and, and, and our understanding and acceptance of change and prosperity is that it encourages people to throw off these, the, the more traditional notions of station that um are part and parts of virtually every other society until we came along but anyway that's my little lecture on that <laughs> um thank you so much for coming on i appreciate it we went thank i think you. 90 minutes and um love to have you back sometime and talk about love to be back all of these things and uh um and the book is the fabric of civilization how textiles change the world and um I also recommend Future and Its Enemies. I shouldn't have had to wait for, for Virginia to do that. <laughs> and people should know that Virginia actually um, gave me my first and only shot writing for Reason Magazine um, over 20 years ago. So there you wow. go. Wow. But you probably don't even remember. 
I don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that memorable. Sorry. But, uh, Sorry. Um, but uh, I just anyway. remember your early uh, blogging. Back yes, in, that's back in the day the when oldest, we were yeah. early bloggers. Um, listeners can't see the single tears running down each of our cheeks as we <laughs> reminisce about the early days of blogging. Anyway, Virginia Brustrell, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Okay, so uh, thanks to Virginia Postrel for coming on. Um, uh, I hope people found this stuff interesting. I did. I think it's sort of a cool, neat way to talk about and to think about sort of the progress of human civilization. There are an enormous amount of sort of, huh, I didn't know that moments when you when you look at her book. And, and, and Virginia is one of the clearest, best writers out there. Um, I know, and I've, I've been a huge fan of hers for a very long time, and I'm kind of ashamed that this was her first time on the podcast, and I will probably have to unfairly beat someone, for, even though it's not their fault for letting this happen. So with that, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. I had a complicated one, which maybe I'll talk about in the solo podcast on Friday. And um, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is the podcast. Sure. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.